0: Amen. No. I'll think. The specific title, The Movie Mandy's Beginning, Middle, and Ending Decoded by Taylor Holmes. 16th September 2018. Just, you know, what kind of ridiculous I'm going after here. Among other things in his early paragraphs, he says we know this movie is so, so, so what? Ephemeral, visceral, ultimately epiphanic. This movie is in need of its own new adjective to describe it. maybe... Epiphenemeral, visceral-gasmic. <sighs> this is this mm. his opening line. I literally just walked out of Mandy, stumbled out of the darkness of the theater, and out into the achromatic muted term of life at large. So I guess he's typing this on the sidewalk outside the theater. In particular, I wanted to get to his description of the plot. Here he is. The opening third of the movie sets the stage for Red Miller's relationship with Mandy Bloom and the perfectness of their love. Okay, several things wrong with this sentence. The opening third of the movie doesn't set the stage for it. The opening third of the movie, at best, presents it, because then the stage is over, and it moves on to something else. So, no, not setting a stage. Red Millers. No, not his name. I don't care about your press materials, I don't care about the end credits. It doesn't have a name. This is people writing reviews and being like, they scribbled down names at the end credits, or looked it up on IMDb. They're like, oh, what was that character's names? And they're like, oh, Red Miller? Yeah, I guess someone probably said that. I remember Red being something to do with this movie. <sighs> Relationship with Mandy Bloom. Also, not her name. The only person... Someone did actually call her Mandy, but that was Jeremiah, and he would have no way of knowing her name. And the perfectness of their love. No. Sorry. We don't see love. We see... Boringness, we see proximity, at best. We barely see them interact, even though we do see them near each other several times. To call it perfectness is... reaching. There's one scene when Mandy walks out from the water and we begin to get a hint that there might be something else going on here. Why? Did you see how the camera dropped into slow motion as she walked out of the lake to stand close to the fire? A. She didn't go to stand close to the fire. You're assuming. I mean, yes, yes. It's edited so that we think that the fire and her walking out of the water are near each other, but we don't see them together because we don't get a lot of coverage in this film. It's almost as if Panos Cosmatos and his cinematographer, Benjamin Loeb, are highlighting Mandy's godness. (laughs) She is from the land of the nymphs, the land of water and of fire. She is not of this world. That Mandy is a perfection that this world doesn't deserve. That's so stupid. No, they're just showing that she has big eyes and a long face. And Red's love for this woman is the only perfect emotion this world has ever experienced. Oh my god. I hate people. (laughs) Not just this guy. Everyone. Because this sentence is the fault of everybody. It's obviously a budding relationship. You just said it was the most so perfectness of love. But it's obviously a budding relationship. I don't know why. Let's see. They aren't married. Thus the different last names. Nope. Sorry. Never mind the last names, never mind the end credits, never mind the press materials. If we're going to trust that her name is Mandy because Jeremiah said it, then we must trust that they are married because Susan said it. And of course, in this context where I'm pointing out that people don't have names unless they say them, Susan doesn't have a name either. I just randomly named her Susan at some point. I'm talking about white wet-haired lady. And they've only recently started connecting and hanging out. No, they live together. In a cabin, in the woods. That's not where you start a relationship. You think, they? She just happened to work at this gas station in the middle of nowhere, and he just happened to be cutting down trees there, and so they moved in together? No. No. Mandy gives Red a reprieve from the chaotic daily routine of his lumberjack life. You tracking with me so far? No, I'm not, because his daily routine... How can you have a chaotic daily routine? That's contradiction just in the wording. But also, how his lumberjack life... What we see of his lumberjack life seems fairly basic. Cuts down trees and then he flies into where he can get into his SUV and drive home. There's nothing chaotic there. And there's no reprieve. Ugh. You're assuming so much beyond the film in this first paragraph here. Then comes the first hints of tragedy for this movie. Mandy finds a dead baby deer in the field. No, she doesn't. The movie, the editing never implies that this is real. Given the later way of editing to, from Red, sleeping to the animated sequences we can assume even in retrospect that this was a dream because why was she laying on the ground at the beginning of that scene why did that scene not end it just cut away because it wasn't real and mandy is transfixed how could this be a dead baby deer yes deers die idiot soon she tells red the story of her father and the starlings her father hates the starlings, and so he talks the children into helping him bludgeon them to death one by one. That's true. Obviously, Mandy refuses. No, that's not <laughs> obvious. Except in as much as she literally tells him that. And as I said at the time, way back in minute, whatever that was, seventeen, eighteen, I think, it would have been a better story if she would killed one. Because that would be a more haunting childhood memory. Uh, then he goes into some... thing... About starlings and what they signify because of a starling murmuration. He shares a video, and I don't even care. (laughs) The starlings, being birds, especially birds capable of such beautiful patterns and stories in the sky, signify a connection to the sky and to heaven. No, they don't. It's just a stupid story to give us darkness in the front part of this film when nothing's happening. It doesn't serve any purpose, it doesn't affect the plot, it never comes up again. And since Mandy is not our protagonist, and doesn't do anything we never get to know her, it doesn't really affect her characterization. So these starlings that her father is killing is seen by her as an abomination. Starlings that her f- that's just bad grammar. And so we get another hint that Mandy may just be an angel, or, at the very least, a symbol signifying incorruptible perfection. <laughs> not at all. No. Because not long thereafter, well actually in this movie it's probably like 20 minutes thereafter, she's at work at the gas station, a customer comes in, and she is a bitch to her for no reason. So no, she's not incorruptible perfection. And Red, he's just you, he's just me, a guy in love with something so perfect he doesn't fully grasp what he's dealing with. That's, That's it, isn't it? To people who like this movie. Is it like the YouTube review who called Andrea Risborough expressive? Because she's not. She should be. Big eyes, long face leaves a lot of room for expressiveness, but that doesn't mean she's expressing anything. And I think a lot of people in this audience just were so enamored with her because of the way she's framed early in this film. Off and up close. Center frame. She's on the only one who talks at all for the first 20 minutes of the movie, except for the stupid Eric Estrada joke and the Galactus line. So of course we're going to get stuck on her. It's easy, cheap filmmaking. Get us attached to the character that's going to die, except she's boring, and by half hour in, we've moved on to the cult. So we're not even paying any attention to her anymore. Mandy is walking on the road as she walks past a group of people in a van. This is true. He doesn't mention that the scene takes like 40 minutes, and several repeat takes, and has stupid red fog. And the leader of the cult, Jeremiah Sand, Mm, we barely know that's his name, decides he has to have her. This is pretty easy to understand. Evil in any form desires purity. In order to blemish it, destroy it, desiccate it. Desiccate? I think you mean desecrate. Desiccate's bad too, but I'm pretty sure you mean desecrate. So he orders his second-in-command, Brother Swan. I'm pretty sure it's swine. Maybe it was just an a- like his accent. <laughs> Linus Roach called him swine. And I've just been going, I don't care, we keep going on swine. To go and fetch her. But he also calls in backup. Jeremiah asks Swan to use the horn of Abraxas. Yeah, we are going to stop right there. The horn of what? Ugh. I dove deep to try and squirrel up the meaning of Abraxas, and after two hours of reading, let me just tell you this, it's confusing. No, it isn't. It's, it's not confusing at all. And he's, he's about to explain what he found, which is a really simple description. Abraxas originally came from the Egyptian-slash-Greek-slash-Roman origin. No one really knows. No, um, it's called Proto-Indo-European Bullshit. But ultimately, Abraxas began associated with Gnosticism, and then after that he was considered to be a trickster demon that was constantly dropping spiritual subterfuge on people, making them believe that he was, in fact, the one true god. That wasn't confusing. When, in fact, he was not. Now we can assume that when the horn is blown, Abraxas minions are summoned. Oh, also, maybe Jeremiah Sands is Abraxas, or more accurately, he is most likely possessed by Abraxas, as seen by the conversations that he has with himself. So far, I've only seen one conversation he has with himself. I don't know if that plural is accurate. I'm fairly sure Panos took the name Abraxas directly from probably the D&D demon slash god. I didn't look it up, the specifics, but that's where I know the name. And the tainted blade of pale knight is also a reference to D&D, so it's probably that. Or it could just be like the 19, I was going to say 80s, but I think it actually came out in 1990. The movie Abraxas, starring Jesse Ventura as an alien. But we also see that blowing the horn has its costs. Jeremiah knows that he's going to have to pay for the blowing of the horn with a life, and he offers brother Hanker. Hanker? We're pretending he has a name. As payment. A life for a life, a blood covenant. Evil as it is. So when these hell's angels, hell spawn, deliver Mandy to Jeremiah, his goal is to defile her, to destroy her. I don't think so. He wants to be with her. That's actually quite specific and explicit in the dialogue. That she laughs at him is what makes him disappointed afterward. Because they cannot be together. To prepare her, Mandy is given crazy, mind-dripping drugs and is stung by a beetle. I'd call it more of a something like a hornet or a yellow jacket or something big. It doesn't look like a beetle. It's the cherry on top of this powerful drug cocktail. Jeremiah comes to Red and tells him that he has the tainted blade of... Okay, he skipped right past the whole rant and uh, skipped the whole scene. That he has the tainted blade of the Pale Knight, straight from the Abyssal Lair. Yep, no idea. Basically, here's what I heard when Jeremiah said this. This is the evil blade of the evil demon that came from his evil home. Evil, evil, evil. <sighs> Kinda, but it's specifically a D&D reference. Pale Knight, N-I-G-H-T, not K-N-I-G-H-T, is a deity from D&D. The demon lord, she lives in the 600th layer of the Abyss in a bone castle on a vast plateau in the endless maze of Baphomet. Which, if you turn all that in, you just think it's cooler. Whatever. Abraxas the Unphasmus, by the way, lives in the 17th layer of the Abyss. Which brings us to Mandy and Jeremiah's attempt to consume Mandy. Well, no, because you just skip past it. You got your scenes in the wrong order. Obviously, our perfect goddess isn't going to allow this. <laughs> Instead, she does the one thing she knows will cripple him completely. She laughs at him. Yeah, because she's doing it on purpose. She's not high and unable to control her responses. And with that, Jeremiah decides she needs to die. So, Red, stabbed and tied up, watches as Mandy is hoisted up and lit on fire. Red is left to watch in horror. <sighs> I guess. This is where it gets stupid. Okay. I just have to stop us here and call something out. Young, Carl Young, is what I have to point out here. And if you've been through college, you know the name well. You know that he was a psychoanalyst that basically crafted slash founded the idea of analytical psychology. He also knows that he had a deep intellectual relation. Blah, 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 boring. Seriously, he gives like para- a few paragraphs here explaining why he's bringing up Young in the first place. Okay. Here's how Young himself describes the Septum Sermonis Ad Mortis, Seven Sermons of the Dead. Which is part of the Red Book. Nah, fuck it. I don't want to read this. It's stupid. The guy's reading way too much into it. He's got a whole paragraph long quote here. Oh no, he's got two of them. But he eventually gets to, and I won't go through all of it because he gets to the end of the movie, and we're not there yet. Uh, So we have a Jungian demon downward spiral happening here. Don't believe me? Be my guest and read his red book. I've already read way more than I should have. I'd currently like those brain cells back. Not how brain cells work. Just trust me. We are watching a cinematic expression of these Jungian ideals. Jung's deep consciousness, Jung's demon possessions, whatever you'd like to call them. Well, if you're going to suggest they're coming from Jung, you should probably use his labels and explain what you mean not just give your passages i don't i, I, I don't, don't have, have time for this today let's not even my death